and we sort of settled on ground stations in in South America because there had been some media coverage of it, but it it didn't tell the full story, right? You know, you'd see a little thing here, a little thing there, and it kind of hinted at some stuff, but it didn't really explain it. And as I'm sure we'll get into on the podcast, when we're dealing with China, there's a there's a lot of layers you got to peel back to understand what what's going on here. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, and welcome back to The Downlink. This week's episode is part two of the Great Ground Game. If you haven't yet, please listen to part one. It's about the ground stations the U.S. and NATO use in the high north. That's near or inside the Arctic Circle. That episode shows just what these ground stations do for national and regional security, who owns them, and their vulnerabilities. In this episode, we're going to look at China's ground stations in the region that the U.S. has traditionally seen as its sphere of influence, South America. At least officially, the U.S. Department of Defense does not seem to utilize ground stations located in South America, but NASA does. NASA uses a commercially owned ground station facility located in Santiago, Chile. Now, remember this location, because it's going to come up in the discussion. Santiago Station is part of NASA's Near Space Network and its Deep Space Network. These networks are used to send telemetry, tracking, and command signals, or TT&C, to spacecraft on orbit or well beyond, and to receive signals from spacecraft. That's called payload data transmission, or PDT. There's a reason I'm using NASA as an example. We know what NASA is using these ground stations for, exploration and scientific missions, because the space agency is run by civilians, and when it does work with the Department of Defense or the commercial sector, the terms of those agreements or contracts are relatively transparent. China's space ecosystem just doesn't work that way. And because of that, the roughly dozen or so ground stations Chinese entities have access to or wholly manage in South America have caused some in defense circles concern. To explain the state of play here, I spoke with Matthew Funioli and Brian Hart from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Here's our conversation. Hi, Matthew. Brian, thank you for coming on the downlink. Hi, Laura. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to be here. You know, before we dive into what's happening south of the equator, this is your first time on the podcast. So it would be great if you could take a moment and introduce yourselves. And Matthew, why don't you go first? Thanks so much. Happy to. Uh, so I am a senior fellow at CSIS with the China Power Project, and I'm also vice president for our Ideas Lab, which is a kind of interesting sort of different thing that we have at CSIS that a lot of other think tanks don't have. It's on one hand, our in-house multimedia studio, but it's also our uh, incubation for new ideas, right? So we're, we're trying to innovate in the new space, try satellite imagery, try out data analysis, figure out all these different things that goes through our ideas lab as well. So I lead that and also a senior fellow with our China Power Project, which Brian is also a part of. And Brian, what are you doing at CSIS? And maybe you want to explain the China Power Project that you're working on as well. 
Yeah, so as Matthew said, I'm a fellow with China Power. Uh, so our program is largely focused. It's actually one of three different programs at CSIS that focuses on China. So we kind of have a pretty large remit. We we look at all different elements of Chinese power. Uh, we have a microsite, uh, chinapower.css.org. Um, and, and, you know, we look at economic power, military power, um, lots of different elements of, of China's national power. Uh, but uh, my own personal you know, focus and interest are most heavily in Chinese foreign policy, Chinese military modernization, and kind of U.S.-China technological competition. So uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is all the stuff I love to talk about. Excellent. And see, today we're going to be talking about grand stations in South America. Isn't this part of some sort of larger project? It It is, yeah. So it's a new initiative that we stood up at CSIS uh, toward the end of, of last year. It's called Hidden Reach. Uh, so it's supposed to have kind of an exciting name, right? What are hidden reach? What does that mean? What are we trying to do? It's always to, fun to be cool. Yeah. We spent a lot of time, <laughs> more time than you, you'd want to know trying to figure out what the name was going to be for this. Um, so so what's hidden reach? Well, there there's just a there's a ton of conversation about China, right? Every everyone's talking about China. And in some issues get a ton of attention, right? Uh Taiwan, right? Everyone talks about Taiwan, everyone talks about cross trade. But in the process of, of us you know, focusing so much on China and U.S.-China relations and what it means for, for the United States, you know, we've lost sight of a lot of the facets that are really, really important about how global dynamics are changing, right? There's a lot of underappreciated elements in relation to China, China's influence, how it interacts with other countries that aren't necessarily the United States that we don't i don't think we don't, we don't have a good sense of of what that looks like and so hidden reach is trying to understand these underappreciated elements of china's international influence and and bring that to light and it touches on a number of different things uh it touches on some things that are highly technical it touches on things that maybe are related to uh some issues that people are familiar with like infrastructure development but we're trying to do with the project is really cast a wide net to understand what it is people are talking about, what information is out there, and then weave together a narrative that helps piece together all these different pieces, right? You have one thing from like a technical article, one thing from a, a Chinese language source, something that the U.S. government said at one point in time. How do you line these all up to tell a story that actually arrives at a place where we have a better understanding of what China is doing and how its influence is growing and what that means for both the U.S., but also our allies and partners around the globe? Yeah, but you started with like ground stations for yeah. space. I mean, what inspired you to research this topic? And well, did anything surprise you? I think for one, you know, we wanted to challenge ourselves, right? You know, if you if you look and see what people are talking about for China, you know, it's easy to default to going, you know, straight into the military with your your sort of first issue. And we thought, okay, what's something that people have talked about in the past, but is is difficult for people to grasp and 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 understand? And, and we sort of settled on ground stations in in South America because there had been some media coverage of it. But it it didn't tell the full story, right? You know, there, you'd see a little thing here, a little thing there, and it kind of hinted at some stuff, but it didn't really explain it. And as I'm sure we'll get into on the podcast, when we're dealing with China, there's a there's a lot of layers you got to peel back to understand what what's going on here. So we I think we just got fascinated by okay, well let's look at this, let's spend some time look at it, let's try to understand you know what's going on. And I and I think in the process of some of the things that really really stood out to us as far as like big picture takeaways is first off, you know, China has this you know, thrust of becoming uh, very much a space power, but 
And that's not necessarily totally different than how a country like the United States or, or how some of our European partners think about the role that space plays in you know information or in its defense or just in scientific exploration and in the civilian space. So that's one part that I, you know oftentimes gets missed. But the other aspect that that really comes out of the research is that whereas the United States oftentimes will partner with other countries overseas as far as um, our space agenda is concerned, there there's more transparency and trust in those relationships. And that's that's founded in a lot of different institutions and engagements. But for China, it's new to the game. So it's still it's still sort of getting its feet wet, trying to figure out exactly how it forms these partnerships overseas. And in the process, there's a lot of things that that leave questions, right? Leave questions about how much the host governments really understand about what's going on uh, at these ground stations. Brian, I don't know if you want to jump in on that. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things that that drove us to focus on this is I think the dual use nature of, mm. of a lot of how space yeah, works. For sure. And you know, I think that's that's why people miss a lot of what, you know, how China might be gaining influence or or achieving its objectives in the military realm by engaging in commercial or civilian activities. And so when you unpack a lot of that, you kind of get at the center of China's strategy and, and some of the tactics that they really like to use you know, whether that's in space or or in other realms. And, and so I think this is a really good microcosm of a lot of what future hidden reach research will look like in terms of how China blends together its its activities to reach to to achieve a lot of different objectives at the same time. You know, last week we had a discussion about the ground stations used for defense and intelligence in the high north. You know, who's there, the types of security risks, and what needs battening down. Now, South America is completely different. Does the U.S. have ground stations in South America? I, I looked and I didn't find any. Or perhaps maybe I should just ask, who has ground stations there? China certainly does. Yeah, I mean, th that's actually, I mean, it's funny that you bring it up because this is one of the places that we actually struggled quite a bit in in mapping out what the environment looks like, right? So normally when you're you're doing some research and you're you're sort of going about the what's China doing, what's what's the United States doing? It's usually pretty easy to to get a full map of of you know what how the United States is interacting in an environment. But when we were looking through South America, really there wasn't as much information as we thought there would be. So one one example, I'll, I'll sort of give you a sort of specific example. Uh, we'll probably you know talk in a little bit about the the Santiago station, right? And that's one that SSC operates and that China had had a contract there for uh, a large period of time. Well, well, NASA and the European Space Agency, ESA, they, they've also leased um, facilities there, right? And that's interesting to think about in this environment of you know South America, trying to get coverage over the skies over South America, having a, a you know a Swedish commercial entity operating a, a a ground station, and you have NASA using it at times, you have ESA using it at times, you also have China in the past having used it as well. So it's a it's a very it's a very interesting environment. Um, one one sort of thing to also keep in mind is that when it comes to space, which I think in a lot of cases is it can get to get into this sort of sensitive area very quickly, the US is is more inclined to to partner with some of its uh, more traditional um, sort of intelligence partners, right? Like those are really the countries it looks at. So if you think about Southern Hemisphere coverage, a place like Australia is really where you'd see the U.S. having a lot of collaboration because we have those kind of agreements uh, already already in place. 
So before we start discussing China's footprint in South America, I think the audience would really benefit from an illustration of just how the Chinese space ecosystem works. You know, the relationships between the People's Liberation Army's strategic support force, the China National Space Administration, state-owned space enterprises, and finally, the Chinese, and here are air quotes, private space sector. Um, Brian, why don't you take that on? Yeah, sure. So I think starting off, I think it's important to understand that the Chinese space ecosystem is, is very different from U.S. ecosystem. They think about it in a different way. So if you think about U.S. ecosystem, you have NASA leading a lot of these large civilian scientific projects, and they're partnering with uh, U.S. private enterprises like Boeing to to create you know space equipment. Uh, whereas in China, your, their their system is very different. It's it's very state led. So you have NASA's official counterpart in, in China is the China National Space Administration, but that the CNSA is very weak in terms of its overall influence on the ecosystem. It it's largely plays a bureaucratic role, uh, it, and it plays a role in in some of the official uh, international cooperation. But by and large, uh, the the ecosystem in China is really run by a you know a, a tight network of very large state-owned uh, enterprises, and also by the, the Chinese military, the PLA. And so that ecosystem is why, you know, we have so many concerns about what China is doing abroad, because you have uh, these these close networks where the, so a couple of years ago, as part of these larger reforms, China set up the PLA strategic support force. And within that, the, the SSF uh, kind of is in charge of space, but also information uh, systems. And so the space component of that is really where the PLA is involved in launching Chinese rockets and in maintaining and tracking Chinese satellites, and also is in, helps to, to launch uh, the PLA and, and some of these other SOEs within China help to launch other countries' satellites and help design their satellites too, especially for developing countries that don't have their own access to space. And so this, if I could just interrupt you for a, a moment, I mean, we were talking about information operations. I mean, the strategic support force is also involved in fielding uh, systems that can also gather information too, as well. No. Yeah, and, and so actually, there's still a lot of ongoing research into just exactly you know what organizations within the strategic support force are in charge of what things. A lot of their reforms that were launched around 2016 have have still not been fully fleshed out in, in the open space. But but we know that you know Chinese hackers and, and Chinese um, information systems experts are working for the strategic support force to help them to collect overseas intelligence, um, you know, SIGINT, com comment, and things like that. And and that's you know closely interwoven with the same um, overall system that's supporting China's space systems. And so they kind of go hand in hand in terms of supporting the, the PLA with things like uh, military intelligence, but also um, space situational awareness and, and on the ground situational awareness too. So that this really is a larger part of, of their, their whole ecosystem. I mean, the U.S. has its own space uh, space force, which was actually set up after China launched its reforms and set up the strategic support force. So I think there's a broader move, you know, with, within different militaries to focus more on space. But I think China was really proactive in, in starting these reforms. And, and again, their their ecosystem is is really tightly controlled by the PLA and these these state-owned enterprises. Can, can I two figure on something on that? Because I just of think course. it's a fascinating topic. So, you know, one of the things that we 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 spend a lot of time joking about when we're we're digging into these research projects is that the the frame of reference in which the discourse in the US is often talked about 
it is entirely wrong, right? It's a wrong frame of reference. Right? We we look at how the, the relationship between NASA and uh, the U.S. military and how that's evolved and changed over time. And I think there's a uh, you know, a tendency to take that approach and apply it to China and say, OK, well, if it's outside of this box of how we think things are supposed to be structured, you know, China's doing it different in for what purpose is it doing it? And, you know, those are those are questions you should ask. Right. We should we should be exploring and trying to understand that. But how how China thinks about civil military relations is fundamentally different than how the U.S. thinks about civil military relations. And so you, you get in these instances where. You have a, a different frame for understanding and organizing what it is that you're trying to do. And then you're also faced with an environment where we have an in, in, uh, imperfect information space. So it it can lead you to go down all these different paths, right? There, you know, things are, I guess, open to interpretation in that sense. So it takes a lot of effort to try to weed through and, and, and get at the heart of it. And I think, you know, Brian, you know, laying it out helps helps to get a sense of how different it really is compared to how we might think about things he, here in the U.S. And that's just really your foundational context for, for any type of analysis you're doing in relation to China. Let me see if I could just boil all this down to a fine point, though. And I'll ask Brian this. Brian, is there any space entity that isn't in some way controlled by the People's Liberation Army? So... This is a good question. And within China, they are really trying to push on paper. They're trying to push and in practice to some extent to set up a commercial a commercial space industry that is, you know, doing commercial space launches similar to kind of how SpaceX has been doing it. Um, but no one in no company in China is close to getting to a place like SpaceX. Uh, and and in fact, the most successful uh, commercial enterprises in China within their commercial space uh, ecosystem really are a lot of them are actually spinoffs of these state-owned enterprises. And so they still have these close linkages with these SOEs and they still have these these ties to the state and to the party. So even even in this this space, which I think they are trying to innovate in, they're trying to 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 be on the leading edge on the commercial end. They're still not there yet, and, and still the the overall the ecosystem continues to be dominated by the state and the party and the military. In your report, you guys squarely focus on a controversial ground station project in Argentina, the Espacio Lejano ground station in Nucrin or Nucrin. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. Sorry, everybody. But from what I understand, this project has been controversial. From the start, and that, that I think was in 2012 for local Argentinians as well as for the U.S. Department of Defense. You know, what is the story here? Uh, it's a great question. You know, in the in the opening, we we sort of alluded to there had been some media coverage, and then it kind of it kind of disappeared. Um, so this we spent you know a really long time you know trying to dig into the specifics here and get a sense of of what's going on and there's a few different layers to to what it is that, you know i think i think we we've, we've kind of worked through so so one is is that there's the the actual contract that you know china has with the argentine government and and how that lays out what this relationship is going to look like so there's a land lease component to it uh you know a, a large swath of land that china leased that the, the station itself is only a small portion of that, but, you know, much a larger, larger space. And so there's questions about is this going to be expanded or, you know, why why is there so much land that they lease there? We don't necessarily have a ton of insight on that part. But then in the specifics of the contract itself, uh, there there are, you know, there's phrasing and language to the to the point of, you know, the Argentine government can't interfere or is not allowed to interfere with activities that are actually 
occurring uh, at the, at the ground station and and that starts to raise a lot of strange questions now that's, that's sovereignty right there yeah yeah i mean just it's, to it's, begin with it's a, it's it's and it's also just it's strange right it it it's one of those things you know where even with the best intention going into research as unbiased as possible you start to go well that just feels weird that that doesn't sound right and then you you add on like okay well, well how does the US do it like how is it how is it you know partnering with with other countries and again it it gets back to a you know the US working with a country like Australia we we have established systems for information sharing so if there are some sensitive aspects there that there's still a platform for sort of sharing then it's sort of this part of well what is what does Argentina get out of this arrangement right okay well maybe at some point it it strengthened ties with China and there might be some benefits there, but it doesn't seem from anything that we could tell either from the research we conducted and we we did quite a few interviews talking to people about this as well that they were really getting any of the type of in any type of information gain out of this environment. It was sort of this, and this is not my phrasing. It's what it gets talked about online as, but as a black box, right? Something's going on there. We don't necessarily know what's going on. And, and I think that just amplifies it, right? You know, I, I, I don't want to, you know, come out and, and make, make it seem as if everything that China is doing at every single one of its ground stations has some nefarious purpose or only supports what the, the PLA is trying to do. These, these ground stations are essential for China's goals. And a lot of those goals are scientific. A lot of those goals are civilian, but because we don't have any transparency into what kind of information is being collected or how the instruments at those sites are being used, because we know there are very, very close ties between the PLA and all of China's other space entities, it just leads you in a direction of, well, there has to be dual use application going on. The technologies is inherently dual use. And we don't we don't have anything to to point us in another direction. And and, and all of that stuff. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Laura. No, no. If you could like take a moment and just sort of explain like how can the ground station be dual use? You know, I, I think there's a lot right. of people who probably, you know, can operate satellites and, and, and stuff like that and, and think about orbits. But when we're actually talking about the ground, you know, what is a dual use ground station? How does that work? Yeah. So so I, this this is a great question. I know that Brian will want to jump in on some of this uh, as well. All ground station, I'm going to go out and say, you know, based off all the research that we did and every single person we talked to that was a technical expert, you know, people that are, you know, you know, at MIT, people that are elsewhere, right? All ground stations are inherently dual use. It doesn't matter if they're a Chinese ground station or not, a Chinese used ground station or not. And the reason is, is that information is something that can easily be weaponized, right? You you need to have telemetry information. You need to have tracking and command of your own assets in space. But the ability to do that doesn't preclude you from also tracking what other countries are doing in the space domain, right? So it starts to provide space situational awareness and what that looks like. Um, you know, communications, you assume military communications are encrypted, and those are probably, if you were snooping, not something you might not want to glean a lot from. But that doesn't that doesn't stop you from trying to use those assets to snoop on other types of communication as well. Where where the line is, is that is that spying or is that not spying? Is that information gathering or, or what that falls into? That'd be more of a, a sort of case by case basis. But the technology itself just has the ability to do a lot of different things. 
just on the comm side itself, the different bands that you can, you know, operate on, right? They they have both civilian and they have military applications, right? We we use wireless communications for, you know, I'm, I'm holding up my phone, right? For our phone, for Bluetooth, for all those different things. But the same band, right, on the radio spectrum can also be used for, you know, you know, your airborne early warning detection systems and trying to understand what else is in your information space and in your information environment. So it, it's very much at the crux of understanding where information and potential military application overlap. And that that that's a lot of what's uh, really going on here. And Brian, I know you probably have some stuff you want to jump in with on this as well. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to tie back to what you said earlier is that, you know, in addition to this having dual use implications, it is important to stress, though, that, that it does definitely also serve scientific civilian purposes as well. And so we know that this ground station was part of it's part of China's deep space network, and it supported uh, to some extent China's 2019, I think it was 2019, uh, Chang'e for lunar rover mission. Uh, so we know it's been involved in this, and we know that they that they do need um, you know ground stations to support their space ambitions. Because in the past, actually, I think it was in 2013, in a previous mission that, that China launched in space, they they actually had to rely on the Europeans to to provide some tracking and, and technical support, just because they didn't have at the time the necessary technological you know capability in terms of global reach, um, and so. For them, given their space ambitions and their their desires to to go further in space, to you know having gone to Mars now with the rover, they they as they push out, they are going to need these these kind of ground stations to support them, uh, and in order to be independent, which is yeah. something that they definitely want. Self sufficiency is a big thing here, right? When we're thinking about China, like it does it does not want to have to rely on other countries, especially other countries that potentially have you know a technological advantage, um, and that's not that's not something that's new. I think ever since you know. The you know ninety five ninety six Taiwan Strait crisis, like China has really really been focused on how does it ramp up its technological capabilities and how how does it technologically independent. Um, the the Taiwan Strait crisis reference there is is kind of a like joke on people who spent too much time thinking about the the PLA. Uh, some of the some of the missiles that were fired during the the Taiwan Strait crisis missed their mark. I guess is what you could say. And the 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 common understanding is that uh, China lost access to the GPS system that they were dependent on, and this really started having them think about okay, we need we need to have our own system in place so that we're not reliant on um, you know positioning from from other countries or from other entities. It, it's again a, a thing about exposure and self sufficiency. I would also add they haven't had that many choices uh, in terms yeah. of cooperating yeah. because the United States has has officially with the Wolf Amendment that passed. I'm blanking on the exact year, but uh, more than a decade old, the Wolf Amendment, it kind of really severely restricts U.S.-China cooperation uh, on space issues uh, because of fears of China stealing technology or mostly concerns about stealing technology. Um, but actually, you know, that hasn't been really that hasn't stopped them from pursuing their goals independently. And so uh, that that's really where China finds itself today is they have these ambitions. And really, the main way that they're going to get there is on their own. And, and that, that's the that's the course they're pursuing. Yeah, you know, China's, you know, this kind of goes along with it, because China has been kicked out of some ground stations, and perhaps that's too harsh of a term, but the Swedish Space Corporation declined to renew its Chinese contracts in 2020. And I believe they were for stations in South America, the high north, and also in Australia. What happened there? So it's a very it's a very polite way of ending the the relationship with with China is not renewing the contract. It's a it's a lovely like politically correct way 
of doing things. Um, so so China <laughs> China had a presence at Santiago for a long time, and in I. The, the when exactly it started, there's a little bit of a, a sort of murky question because the Santiago previously part of it was operated by um, one of the one of the universities in the area and China sort of funded or supported what was going on there. But ever since SSC sort of took over and began operating at Santiago, China has had um, a, a place there. Right. And as I mentioned earlier, other countries have also had a place there. And so they they had a lease. And at some point, I don't remember when it was. Uh, over 10 years ago, they signed a 10-year lease to to renew that contract and and carry it into the future. So that's that's a context of what that looked like. And as I said before, you know, ESA, for instance, has has used Santiago um, in the past. Well, I, I think it was I think it was 2019. Uh, there was uh, the the Swedish Defense Research Agency. I might have gotten that name wrong, but I think that that I was. I think the, that's I think that's what it is. Actually, I, I was reading that, it last night. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what the name is. So they came out with a report and said, um, okay, well, very much in line with this sort of dual use and and how we were just sort of framing how how some of this technology could be used in in other contexts. Well, China's could be violating the terms of its agreement to only use SSC facilities for civilian purposes to collect intelligence that's feeding into the military, right? It might be using it for military intelligence gathering purposes. And this wasn't even at Santiago, it was in Karuna, the the sort of, you know, up Arctic circles um, in, in Sweden that that they had been leasing space from there as well. And so this and it was imagery, I think it was yeah, from yeah, Karuna, right? I think that's correct. I think that's correct. And the, the report came out and, you know, it was, it was interesting because, you know, it wasn't an immediate move away. Like there was this period where there was this this information, this report came out and SSC was like, well, we're going to look into it. But, you know, we have an agreement. We're, we're only we're a civilian agency where we don't do military intelligence gathering. And it kind of was in this flux period for a little bit. And then, you know, a couple months later, they should have announced, uh, well, we're not going to we're not going to renew our ties with, with China. We're not going to renew the contract. And, you know, I think that's very much, you know, a, a factor of, you know, that report came out and said your facilities could be used for other purposes. And I, I think SSC maybe needed some time to to think through what that meant as far as their business model. I, you know, I don't think there's anything nefarious going on with them. It's just a they got to they have to wrestle with this. And then also at the same time, um, and Brian, we were talking about this before, before we got on, on the podcast, the temperature on China ha- has dramatically changed. And right? if you think about you know, so this this happened in, in uh, 2019. I think the contract ran maybe through 2020 or something like that. It did. And yeah, if you go back, so you go back to let's go back to to let's go back to to you know 2010. The way that people talked about China was very different then, right? There there was a lot of different like, okay, well, China's you know, this rising you know power. How is it going to use that power? You know, there there was this. Uh, I, I remember seeing these like economist ads from around that time. It's like, is China a friend to the West? Is China, you know, an enemy to the West? Yeah, there's very, you know, diametrically opposed conceptions of of where we're headed on China. Um, and so, you know, that there was there was a different environment then. So if you think there's this concern about dual use, a lack of transparency, and then on top of it, you have all of these questions and concerns about just China in a broader sense outside of just the the domain of space and the domain of using these ground stations that that really just colors things in a, in a very, very different way. And there's and there's no way to you know, just sort of change it. That's the that's the the momentum of where we are right now, how we frame everything in relation to um, what we think about China. Now, there is a bit of decoupling. I mean, if you look at today's headlines, which I did just before we all got together here. 
you know, there are some headlines out there that I need to run down, but allegedly uh, the European Space Agency is saying that their astronauts are not going to go up and visit the Chinese space station. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, isn't it? And when I looked at your report and at the map of uh, Chinese operated or accessed ground stations, there were about a dozen, which we'll now say minus one because they're no longer operating out of uh, <laughs> Santiago, Chile. About a dozen works though, right? About it's a dozen, about exactly. Yeah. A dirty dozen um, in five countries. And I'm imagining, and perhaps incorrectly, after all that we've been discussing, that they have some sort of PLA presence if they're not outright managed by the you know, special support force, or maybe I'm just wrong in that. I mean, I want our audience to understand clearly why is this worrisome for the U.S. and possibly for defending the homeland? Yeah, I'll take a stab at that. I mean, I think the question of whether those do have dual use applications or whether the PLA might have influence there or or be using those facilities, I think something that we need to to look into further, because I think this is all part of this process. I mean, you know, Matthew and I, our our team here for this report, dug in on a couple of these space uh, ground stations to, to look deep into them. But I think this fits into the broader picture of what China is doing in the region and around the world. I think for the U.S. specifically, the concern is we've seen from the I think it was the the commander of uh, U.S. Southern Command raised the question about these these specific space uh, ground stations and what China could be doing, how they might be uh, used for military intelligence uh, and collection. One of the things that I think we point out in the report, too, is that in addition to having implications for for the United States military that's operating in the region, I think one of the things that that's important to me is thinking about how China engages with these countries in the region who are not playing on a level playing field with Beijing. So Beijing has so much money, it has so so much influence uh, that it's it's hard to say no to China for a lot of these governments that want to work with Beijing, but they're definitely not doing that on an equal footing. And, and so that's that's I think a big issue for the United States. I think we have, I think, taken advantage of, of U.S. lasting influence in the region. Uh, and I think because of that, other countries have started to turn to China more for you know, economic support and for engagement across a lot of diplomatic political avenues. And, and I think the important thing for the United States to be able to do as we look at this region is to find ways to help these countries to operate with and to engage with China on, on a more equal footing, to encourage China to be more accountable and transparent about what it's doing so that you know, in future contracts, maybe they're not saying that that the Argentinian government can't have any influence or, or uh, any activities around around these facilities. So I think that's been a big concern for me as we write about this. Matthew, I don't know if you had any thoughts. No, I I think that that's exactly right. You know, in terms of yeah, I think maybe there's two 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 sort of sides to this, right? One is is that we again when we think about uh, foreign militaries, we probably you know our, our frame of reference is the U.S. military, where we make really clear distinctions in the U.S. when someone is a military officer or not. Um, the PLA has a lot of people and a lot of personnel, and PLA personnel can slide in and out of lots of different organizations and entities. Whether those are companies, those are political organs, people can have a PLA affiliation in in some way or or the other. And so, even even in cases, and this extends beyond ground stations where you might have a a, a a civilian entity or a company or an SOE operating in, in some sort of seemingly 
uh, civilian or commercial environment, members of their board might be, you know, associated closely with the PLA. They could be uh, affiliated with the PLA in ways that information is trickling back from there in directly into the military. And that's just that's just on the human level, right? That's just like what one person could potentially do. So it's it's hard. It's just hard to understand. But I think Brian's exactly right. Like, what does the U.S. do? The, the U.S. The U.S. should not be in this game of trying to you know counter everything that China is doing. And it's, it's 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 not the right it's not the right thing. It's very reactive. Uh, and, and especially in this in this region, you know, we you know, I would, I'd argue the U.S. has kind of neglected the South America, right? Just taken for granted that the U.S. is the preeminent power and that you know, countries are going to look to the U.S. when they're looking for an outside foreign foreign power uh, as a, you know, for for whatever variety of reasons it is. And so what what should the U.S. do? Well, the U.S. needs to re-engage, right? We have so many tools for diplomatic engagement, we have so many tools for soft power engagement that countries want. And we need to we need to demonstrate that, right? There needs to be that that kind of effort. And to me, that's the that's the best possible counter you could have to to any of the any of the stuff we're talking about or anything else when it comes to potential dual use applications of whatever it is in in South America. Is, well, the U.S. has to do something, and the U.S. really has to you know come to the table with something to offer. Gentlemen, Matthew, Brian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you so much for having it on. We really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's great to be with you. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.